are the personal wealth coach. Uh, this, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me is... Jeff McClure, and it's easy for you to say. It is easy for me to say. It's, it's easy for you to say. In fact, it's easy for a lot of people to say. Speaking yeah. is not that difficult sometimes. There are times you when it is. You didn't say anything about ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, though. No, I, I skipped that part, uh, and I'm, I should be admonished for that. Well, welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach, and if you didn't hear it earlier, you can send us emails and we will respond to them. You can send them to either jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com, and we'll we'll respond to them as lively as we can if you send them while we're on the air. And we are live and in living voice if, now that's if today is September 26th. If it's some other day, we're dead and in non-living voice. Yes. Well, I have a subject to bring up. Um, it's a new subject. It's a subject we have talked about in the past, but I have some uh, some interest in it this time around. What, what were you going to say? I want to talk a little more about value stocks, if I could. Yeah, let's hit that. Let's do that. And then I want to talk about uh, medical pricing. Um, and then, uh, so why don't you touch the, the value stocks? There's a key element in, in trying to understand value stocks, and again, you can look back to 2000 and see it. You can look back to the fact that from about 1994 to 2000, owning value stocks was extremely unpopular for a very good reason. They didn't rise very much. They had a very slow growth rate compared to the growth stocks, and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of faith to be somebody like Warren Buffett and own stocks that you bought because they were mispriced where the company's worth more than the stock, because sometimes it takes a while for the market to wake up to that. And so my recommendation is not that you go out and try to pick value stocks, because there have been a lot of people fail at that. The best way, in my opinion, to deal with that is to get a value ETF or a value mutual fund that has an excellent track record. Now, when you look at their returns over the last several years, you're going to see they're nowhere near as good as the S&P 500. This because they're buying value stocks, and it, you have to be patient and a true believer to find out that value stocks work. But the great investors of the 20th century and now into the 21st century who have consistently done the best in transparent ways where we can see what they actually did, think people like Warren Buffett, are value stock buyers. I that agree with I, that. That was great. That is all. All right. Okay, so... Why have we played reruns for the past several weeks? Um, and I will explain that. Uh, so we had a we had a live show. Well, well, first three, I guess four shows ago, four programs ago, we had a rerun. Uh, three programs ago, we had a live show. Two programs ago, uh, we had a rerun, and then this week we're live. So we've kind of staggered through this. We're staggering back and forth between live and reruns. Well, why? Well, the first time around is because I went in for a uh, elective procedure. Um, uh, it is a pretty common procedure that's uh, done when men do not wish to have more babies. Um, and uh, as an economist, I was really curious about the system. And there's, I've read all the studies and I've read the reports and I look at surveys all the time. So I worked really hard in the four months leading up to the procedure to try to get a price in advance for what the procedure would cost me. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's read the studies and the reports and so on. Obviously, I didn't get that price before the procedure started. I had no idea what the price was going to be. In the process, uh, I had to go to a nurse practitioner who can prescribe medicine um, and be told about the whole procedure, what the risks were, and, you know, this makes sense. In the same hospital system, I was then assigned a procedure date, and I went in for the procedure. Well, in that process, it was discovered that you know, this is a, a procedure that's done while you're awake, so it's local anesthetic. It was discovered that the nurse practitioner had not prescribed for me any calming medication to take in advance of the procedure. I said, okay. So we're going to use nitrous oxide during the procedure. Okay, I've had that at the dentist's office. I know what nitrous oxide is. It's laughing gas. I actually know how to make it. 
I'm familiar with people who use it in their automobiles, and I know what the price is because it's really pure when you're using it in an automobile. And uh, it's r roughly um, $3 to $4 a pound, and that's a pressurized pound in a, in a container to use in an automobile. Uh, it costs a lot less than that to make it. Now, you've got to go through all these checks to make sure that it's working properly and that it's nice, it's the grade of it is, is healthy for people. I understand that. So at the time of the procedure, they said, have some nitrous oxide. I said, all right, that sounds great. I know what the bill is when I get it from a dentist. I know what the bill would be at a car shop. That makes sense. I asked the doctor, do you know what it's going to cost me? Nope, we don't know what it's going to cost you. But if you don't take it now, we're going to have to reschedule this, and it'll be another three months. And I said, oh, well, okay, well, I guess I don't have a choice then. Let's go with this. Um, so... Uh, went through the procedure. It went well. No big problems there. Uh, it's not like it was fun. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, woohoo, this is so much fun. But it, it, there were no complications. It, it happened. Um, recovering nicely. Checking for bills over time. Uh, my insurance company has been billed a couple of times, and they paid out some bills. And eventually, I was able to go online at the hospital and see what the bill was. Now, they didn't show me that before they sent it to the insurance company. It was there. Okay. I had exactly 20 minutes of nitrous oxide for $1,753. Did you catch that? I got it. If I had been prescribed the pill that uh, was going to be prescribed for me at, by the nurse practitioner, it would have cost $2. So in not prescribing me a pill for $2, I had to pay nearly $2,000 to remain calm, these are the air quotes over that, during the procedure. So I've contacted the hospital and been moved up through administration, and I'm talking to, it's been escalated, and they're saying, well, we'll we're going to do an audit and make sure that the price on that is correct. I'm like, well, of course it's correct. Your computer knows the code for this. It knows what you charge at the hospital. I'm not calling because I think the charge is wrong. I'm calling because you didn't tell me what the charge was in advance, and now I have to pay it. And if I had known it was going to be $2,000, I might have said, all right, we'll wait three months and I'll take a pill for $2. Um, so they are escalating this and they're talking it back and forth because it was an error on the part of the hospital network. But the thing is, if it hadn't been this in the procedure, it would have been something else. And I have very anecdotal information as well as broad study information on pricing at hospitals, on pricing for procedures. Unless you're in the VA system, uh, you don't know what you're going to be charged in advance almost ever when it comes to procedures. So anyone that thinks that this is a free market system needs to relook at that. Uh, if they think it was socialized because of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, just know that this pricing structure didn't happen because of the Affordable Care Act. It existed before. It's the relationship between insurance companies and hospitals, which is very private. Uh, it is a one-on-one -on -one between the insurance company and the hospital. They don't inform the patient or customer, if you're the insurance company, of any of the negotiations. And that means that even though I'm the one that will be paying this out of pocket because I have a high deductible plan, I am not privy to what I will be charged until after it's done and I have to pay it. That's a real problem. It's one of the problems that's not being talked about in this presidential election, but it's one that I think is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. This is not politics, although politics has influenced it. It's really bad market behavior because politics has influenced it. And politics influenced it before the Affordable Care Act. This is something I have to tell people again and again and again. Before the Affordable Care Act, we had socialized medicine in the United States. It just wasn't regulated. If you show up at an emergency room of a not-for-profit hospital, and almost all the hospitals are not-for-profit at this point. 
you are required to be given assistance if you're in imminent danger, if you have a wound that they can take care of, regardless of whether you can pay for it. And this goes back decades. This is something you show up, you get served. And, and I don't want to change that. If I show up for, I, I don't know why this would happen, but if I am outside of the emergency room, naked, bleeding, with no proof that I can pay, I still want them to fix me. And I'll figure out how to pay them later. Well, what's happened is that because they're required to treat people at the emergency room when they're really injured, and a lot of the people that they're treating can't pay, they just charge the people that could pay more. And that's caused insurance rates to go up. And really what it comes down to is we have to look at the entirety of the system and say, if we're going to require hospitals to treat people with no proof of payment, how do the hospitals get paid? Because what they're doing now is just putting that weight of bills on the bills of the people that do pay, which causes the insurance rates to go up, which causes fewer people to have insurance, which causes them to be less likely to pay when they show up, which causes the bills to go up for the people that do pay, which causes insurance rates to go up. So you see this cycle that we're in. And so far, we don't have anyone trying to direct that and say, slow this down, let's get more people with insurance, or subsidize them with the government, because if the government mandates a hospital has to, has to do the procedure, regardless of being paid, but this is what is called an unfunded mandate, at a municipal level, if it's a state and the government and the federal government says to the state, you must do this. Well, the state will usually turn around and sue the government because it's an unfunded mandate. They can only do that if they're tying it to some other benefit. If the government is giving them some other benefit and they say, you must pay this other thing or we're going to take this thing away. That's not true when it comes to hospitals. The hospitals have to do it. Now, they do get a benefit. They are considered a not-for-profit, which means that they don't pay taxes at the hospital level on the revenue that they receive. Now, if they're paid as an employee, they pay taxes. But the corporation is a not-for-profit corporation, which means they don't pay taxes. It's like a church or a charity. Unfortunately, hospitals are not run like a church or a charity, and they still have that same 50C3 designation, 501C3 de uh, yeah. designation, which is which says that they need to run themselves as a, as a charitable organization. Um, and there's problems across the board there, just everywhere you look. And people that say, "Hey, it wasn't communist or it wasn't socialized before," the definition of a 501C3 is it it's community owned the board makes the decision but it's community owned so that means it's owned by everyone it's the people's organization uh, when it comes to a church that makes sense because it's the community that owns it but community and communism have the same root word it's the same concept just hold that in mind when you're looking at different forms of payment capitalism versus socialism versus communism is we have all three of those systems all around us all the time. And to say that any system in our marketplace, in our economy, is only capitalist is wrong. And to say it's only communist, it's wrong. The places where we have the most overlap of capitalism and communism is the, are the places with the worst pricing structures right now. And that's going to be in higher education, colleges, and in hospital and medical care, where U.S. federal government is paying a lot of money into those systems and preventing a normal capitalistic enterprise, but at the same time also preventing socialism from coming over and completely taking over. So we have the worst of socialism and the worst of capitalism kind of in a weird ancestral relationship in colleges and in medicine. And it's going to require a pretty fine-tooth comb to clean that out and getting it lined up in one direction. It requires a complete overhaul. And uh, we, the closest to a complete overhaul was nowhere near a complete overhaul with the Affordable Care Act. 
It actually was not a CARE Act, even though it was called that. It was an insurance act. Um, so there, that, that was my uh, nine and a half minute soliloquy. Um, do you have, thank you. Do you have anything you want to add to it? No, I think, well, let me simply say that our medical system is screwed up financially. Not that we don't have a good medical system, but you look at the big numbers, the macroeconomic numbers, we spend a lot more, something like twice as much as any other developed country in the United States on medicine. And I don't mean developing medicines. I'm talking about actually working to heal people that are sick when they go in the hospital or they go to the doctor. And yet we have, if you look at the statistics for illness and mortality in the United States, we have a much higher mortality rate, a much higher illness rate than they do in these other countries for serious illnesses. For instance, there are a couple of there's a couple of countries in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, that have a better infant mortality rate than the United States does. And that is embarrassing, to say the least. We need a careful study and an overhaul of the system. And it, it is, it's not going to be pleasant for some people, but it is something we desperately need. We still have a significant portion of the population uninsured. And as Jake said, when they show up at the emergency room, it costs you money whether you know it or not. We have a system that is that financially and um, and economically seems to be designed not to reward effective treatment, but rather to punish firms and hospitals who want to do things right and reward the ones who want to follow all the fine print and the rules. And we are suffering because of it. Um, it's just that's just the reality of the system. We like our system, particularly if you're upper income or you're upper middle income, or if you're on social, or if you're on social, uh, Medicare or Tricare, you've got a good system. The problem is, is a big chunk of the system that doesn't work very well, and we spend. Again, this is a problem that is going to take some careful study. It's going to take something like the Social Security um, Task Force that was headed by Alan Greenspan back in the what was it, the 80s or 90s to look at very carefully to fix because we have a very inefficient system where somewhere between somewhere between a third and half of all the medical expenses incurred by the average individual using the system in the United States are incurred in the last two years of their life when heroic efforts are made to and, and great numbers of treatments are given to people who are dying who are going to die and it doesn't, doesn't shorten the time that they die a bit it just President Obama mentioned something that got his attention. Now, whether he fixed it or not is open to question. But his grandmother had a hip replacement surgery when she was dying of cancer, and it was paid for by Medicare. She was dying of cancer and was bedridden and could never use the hip replacement surgery, but she got it anyway because Medicare would pay for it. There's something wrong with the system that does that, and that has not been fixed by the Affordable Care Act. Anyway, that's enough. Of, that's what I have to and say. It's not been. It wasn't intended to be fixed by the Affordable Care Act. That, that me, I mean, mangled ruins of how we're supposed to pay for things across the entire medical world. Let me mention one other thing that relates to this. Social Security drop dead date when it runs out of money, according to the office, according to the Congressional Budget Office, has now been moved back to 2030. That was. That was from the report that came out at the beginning of this year that does not include the pandemic. Well, the one I read included the pandemic and said it's moved back to 2030, and 2026 is when the disability money runs out. Okay, so we're talking about these issues with Medicare. Five and and a half years. We're talking about Medicare running out at about the same point. We're talking about the fact that and let me just just a, just just a moment, just a moment. When we say running out, drop dead date. Let's let's be careful about that. It means that at that point, the trust fund will be depleted, and the government, the Social Security Administration, will have to fall back on current Social Security tax revenue. And what that does is it would give you about two thirds of the benefit that is being received right now. So it, that's where we say adopted and running out of money. It doesn't mean that you get no money. Uh, don't want to start a panic. You should be upset enough with a third going away. We need to fix it. 
There's, there's no doubt in my mind we've got to address this. If we do not address this as soon as we can, this is like uh, some things don't get better with age. Um, the longer we wait, the more expensive it's going to be. There. I just wanted to come in and make sure drop-dead date and running out of money was not misleading. Yep, makes sense. Okay, uh, the Greenspan Commission is what you were talking about, and I agree. It, but it, it would, we would need to have somebody like Ben Bernanke lead it. But this is one of those actions that requires Congress or the president to do it. Um, that's not being even suggested. This is another thing that I think is important, is that nobody's talking about the budget during this presidential election. Nobody. They're not talking about how do we balance the budget in the future. There's no plan on either administration or potential administration's uh, website or written anywhere that says anything about how we balance the budget. And I believe that that is incredibly important long term because we're taking all I, I expect us to take on more debt before we're through the pandemic uh, and to take in less revenue than expected because we're in the pandemic. Uh, 2019 was a pretty good year for taxes, but it was still nowhere near enough to pay for what we were borrowing at the time. 2020, or yeah, 2020, it's, it's, our revenue is going to be way down uh, for, in 2021, when we're getting the revenue for 2020, uh, we're going to have a lot less revenue than normal, and we've got a lot more debt, which means we've got to be looking out there for the next few years, how do we tackle this? After World War II, we really buckled down and paid paid higher taxes, but we got out of that mountainous debt that we had after World War II. I don't know if we have the intestinal fortitude to do that again. I think we're pretty spoiled right now. We we like the easy life and don't want the government getting involved, except when we want it to. There's an email we got from Alan. I think you got it, too, that... Um that the Trump administration is trying to deal with the hospital expense issue. And he sent a link to the uh, Health and Human Services. Trump administration announces historic price transparency requirements to increase competition and lower health care costs for all Americans. All right. I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work. I get complete transparency now. I'm on a health care. Well, I'm on health insurance through our business. And when I show up and say, I want to get, I need, or my doctor prescribes something, they tell me how much it's going to cost, which is already there. And they also, when I get the statement, when it's been paid or I've had to pay it or whatever, it tells me how much the hospital charges and it's kind of like a dealer's estimate, what the, the recommended retail price that the dealer gets on a car and how much I actually paid or how much the insurance company paid. The problem is, if my doctor prescribes it, says you need an MRI, the fact, the, the idea that I'm going to go to five hospitals, stand in line, go up to a desk, and get the cost of the MRI from five different hospitals, when my doctor is working only at the hospital, has only got admittance privileges to the hospital that he first prescribed me to get the MRI at, which means that from the other hospitals, he won't get the same records. He won't get the same information. It's kind of shot in the head. And the other yeah. thing is they all charge pretty much the same amount. It's pretty it's pretty even. Whatever Medicare will pay is what they charge because the law under Medicare requires them to do that. Now, they can give a discount to insurance companies on volume, which is what he wants them to reveal. But the point is if you don't have the insurance company's discount, you can't get the price anyway. Yeah. And, and this executive order – executive orders need a congressional legislation uh, – to act. The president is given the powers of, of movement inside the law of the United States by Congress. So in the president's executive orders, it's more than one. There's a whole series of orders that he's written out on medicine. Um, it is on, uh, it, it's using um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, and Department of Human Services to get this done. But there's a lot of vagueness in the executive orders. And what I can tell you, 
without any any reservation is that all of them will be challenged in court because it's going to require a lot of expenditure on the hospital's part to get their systems actually working. So it costs less to go to court than to get the systems working. And I expect that to happen. And they're likely to win in court. And the reason is because these the hospitals, unless it is a Medicare issue or a Medicaid issue with federal funding, the U.S. government has a uh, their hands tied on what they can mandate the hospital to do. Um, they can mandate treatment at the emergency room if it's a 501c3. So non-for-profit means they've got to treat people even if they have no proof of payment, if the person's in imminent danger. Um, but what it doesn't say is that you have to treat everybody, because they couldn't say that. Um, th- this is an important piece the president coming forward and saying we need transparency, they need to follow this rule if you're on Medicare or on Medicaid. They may not have to follow the rule for anything else. And when he's talking about the negotiated price with the insurance companies, there's no way that that's constitutional, unfortunately. It would require states, all the states, to pass acts similar to it. And the president executive order would work. Why is it unconstitutional? Because these hospitals aren't doing business across state lines in a lot of cases. They are inside a state, uh, and that means they're regulated by the states. The United States government has the role of interstate trade regulation. So it would require the states to act, or the federal government to pass an amendment to the Constitution, which has to be ratified by the states. Go ahead. thing about his his executive order, it says it has to give consumers real-time personalized access to cost-sharing information, including an estimate of their cost-sharing liability for all covered health care items from an employer-sponsored plan. Yeah. I already get that. Yeah. I'm in the, I, we're in the largest United Healthcare is the one we use. It is the largest healthcare supplier in the United States, largest insurance company in the United States now. It does already give what the price is the hospital wanted to pay, the discount they got, and how much they actually pay, and how much I'd actually pay. No. So it really didn't change anything, and it doesn't reduce the cost very much. We're not trying to trash this because it's the only effort that's being done right now to get anything done. Uh, but the president really has his hand tie- hands tied here. He cannot introduce legislation. He cannot say this is the new law unless he's just reinterpreting existing law. And none of the existing laws require this stuff. He's, he may be saying we need this for our record-keeping purposes at the federal government level with Medicaid and Medicare. But the reality is he's not changing the prices. He would just be showing us what the prices are in advance. Uh, and that's that's better than what we get right now. I mean, I couldn't get a price on my procedure for five months of trying in advance. Uh, when I did get the price, it was weeks after the event and only after it went to my uh, insurance company first. And they paid on stuff because it was just a, a, sta- a, a knee-jerk reaction. You pay the thing. It's on the code. It's all written out right. They didn't check to see, well, did they make mistakes and Instead of prescribing a $2 pill, they prescribed a $2,000 treatment. Um, That's silliness. Uh, The reality is that most people give up on the process. When they get a bill, they either don't pay it or they say, uh, I have to pay it. When the reality is that we have some say in what we pay, we have some ability to say, you can't charge me for things that I didn't know you were charging me for in any other industry. <laughs> but with a hospital, we don't get that ability. Um, so there you go. And I'm thinking back, and I actually and didn't I- sign anything that said I was uh, uh, consenting to treatment in, in this process. So it's a little bit interesting. But you can have them reverse it. I, oh, yeah, I'll just have it reversed. That should take the money back out, right? They won't yeah. charge you twice. That's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off when they put the car up on the jacks well, and they saying, put it in reverse. I think what we're trying to say is what President Trump did was an effort in the right direction. But United Healthcare, at least the ones that we have, already gives us all the information that uh, President Trump indicated except the price that's being charged in advance. All right. <laughs> 
So let's and see. It may, it may have some protection. It may provide some good. Yeah. But most it's going to provide more paperwork. All right. So I think we've covered that one. Um, let's talk about some other stuff. Um, unemployment numbers. Um, we're, you know, the, the weekly numbers are just under 900,000 new applications for unemployment as of for last week. What does that and mean? But it's been for the last three weeks, four weeks, actually. It, we've had about the same numbers. They've risen and fallen a little bit from week to week. But it means that newly unemployed people that are applying for benefits, now that's roughly half the total number because uh, those people are the ones who actually are, are regular employees. They're not contract labor. They're not independents. Is held steady. It's something close between 800 and 900,000. And it's this week was 800. Or last week it was 870,000 new layoffs. I'll put that in perspective. The normal layoff over a long period of time in the history of the United States has been about 200. In a healthy economy, is about 200,000. So we're having about four times the number of people laid off that we have had. We also have about 12 million people continuing to draw unemployment insurance on a long-term basis. Now, it started, that number fell by 167,000 in the last report, but it doesn't mean much because we've hit the six-month point in this pandemic now. In most state programs, you can only draw for six months, no matter how hard you're looking for a job. So this fall-off is at least partially because people are, the first people who applied for unemployment are the people who are now not, who, who've hit the six-month point and can't get unemployment anymore. Right. Everything that I see indicates that the number of people being hired back or being hired, it roughly balances the number of people that are being laid off each week. We won't know that until next week when we get a monthly report from the Labor Department. Right. And, I, and I've got some other numbers that kind of like, fit into this. We, we've recovered about half the jobs we lost at the worst of the pandemic, but we seem to be stuck there. Uh, with about half the jobs staying lost. And a lot of the jobs that are lost may not ever come back because they're from companies that are failing. Right. When I say they may not ever come back, there'll be new companies formed, but it'll take years for those companies to form and to build up to speed, to build capital, and to hire back people. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office and the Federal Reserve agree that it's probably going to be at least 2023, maybe 2024, before we get back to full employment again. Yeah. Um, looking at trucks, so what do trucks have to do with unemployment? Anybody that's listened to our program for any length of time knows that we'd look at tonnage being moved on the roads. Uh, the American Trucking Association has, is tracking tonnage being moved on the road, and we are massively down still. So uh, our last reading was in August, and it's about 9% below what it was last year at this point. Uh, in um, July, it was about 8.5% lower than last year in July. And then uh, in June, it was only about 1.3% below. So we were having a recovery. And then you go back into May and uh, April, and, and, and what you'll find in May and April is, is a 10% or 12% drop. We're not back up in our shipping yet. We're not back up in our employee uh, employment yet. But those of you that are feeling like this is a weird feeling because you don't know anybody that's been laid off, or if you do, they've got a job again, Texas's unemployment rate is about 6.8%, where the rest of the country is significantly higher than that. And there's certain states that are above 10% on their unemployment. So this is not, it's not averaged across the country in the experience. You've got clumps of really bad situations. And, and I'll give you some other numbers. We've got um, uh, the state of Texas is uh, they update their monthly numbers for sales tax revenues. Get this, they update their monthly numbers monthly. But it's a month in behind. So we're looking back at August's rate for Bell County. Overall, for Bell County, every single municipality in Bell County 
is higher for sales tax revenue year to date this year than they were last year. Higher significantly. The, Go ahead. One of the disadvantages of being dependent upon sales tax. There's some disadvantages. Wait, but, we're higher this year on sales yeah. taxes. One of the tremendous advantages of being dependent upon sales taxes. Now, there's disadvantages because if shopping falls off, then our sales tax revenue falls off. But most places in the United States are dependent upon income taxes, and as a result, they're hurting. Yeah. Uh, Travis County, I was talking about Bell County. So Travis County, on the other hand, is negative from what it was last year. So even just a 45-minute drive, a 30-minute drive away from Bell County, you have a significant difference in tax revenue. Uh, so basically, if you're in a big municipality, your sales tax revenue pretty much across the country is down. And if you're in rural areas or suburban areas, pretty much across the country, you're up. Go ahead. Well, I think there was, I read about a difference. The difference between the two is uh, a lot of the sales tax revenue for Travis County came from bars. That is correct. Ours comes from mostly buying stuff other than bars and restaurants, so we tend to be better off because people are, even the bars and restaurants in places across the country that have opened up completely, no government restrictions on them like Florida, are still seeing much, much lower numbers of people coming in to sit in large groups inside their bars and restaurants. And the people that are seeing those sales tax revenues go up are in smaller towns because they live there and they have been driving to the bigger town to go to work, and they're not doing that anymore. They're either yeah. working remotely or just staying home because they don't have a job. Uh, but that means that the money that they do spend is happening locally rather than in the big city. So overall, sales tax revenue in Texas is down, but it's up in many of the rural areas and majorly down in many of the municipal areas. Um, so just... Heads up on that. It's an interesting little factor on another piece of, of how the economy isn't universal. It's There's some parts of it that are good and some parts of it that are bad. We don't have no truck with them big city folks anyway. Right. That's the American Trucking Association. They got truck with everybody. <laughs> there's some good news out there, though. Uh, the Flash Purchasing Managers Indexes. How do you like that? Flash purchasing. Well, the flash is the preliminary report that's got like 85% or 90% of the reporting information in it. I, I just thought it was just a flash. Yeah, it's just, it just appears momentarily on the screen, and you have to read it really fast. Anyway, they're positive in the United States. Uh, manufacturing is at 53.5 and 54.6 for non-manufacturing. What does that mean? We're recovering. Purchasing managers are the people who buy the stuff in advance because of the business that the managers see coming in. They buy the stuff in advance, uh, whether it be manufacturing, raw materials, or food, and they see that coming, and they say, how are we doing? Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? And it's a pretty good estimate of what's going to happen over the next few months. It's up a little bit. 53 and 54 is not earth-shakingly high, and since we're still down about 50%, we're only recovered about 50% from the bottom in the manufacturing and in, in, in services areas. We've still got a long ways to grow. We're growing about 1.4% per month, but it's going to, and again, that's consistent with telling us it's going to take several years to get back to normal. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of across the board, that's what we're seeing, several years to get back to normal. Uh, we need a vaccine. It'd be nice to get some more stimulus from the government. A major thing that I wanted to talk about is the Paycheck Protection Program. Congress needs to figure out how to act together in the middle of an election. I don't know that we're going to get that, but the banks are begging at this point. How do we do this forgiveness stuff? You haven't give us, given us anywhere near the tools that we need to finish this. So there's a lot of small businesses that have received the Paycheck Protection Program funds that have no idea how to ask for it to be forgiven. There's a deadline out there on it, but the government hasn't provided the tools to the banks or to the people to get it done. So the banks are going, hey, what's going on? And this is one of those few instances in the world, so you might want to mark this down somewhere, where the American people need to be listening to what the banks are saying. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't happen very often, <laughs> but in this case, it's true. There's a uh, matter of fact on the Paytech Protection Program. There's a paycheck. There's a there's a 
form that's called the EZ Paycheck Protection Program Forgiveness Form. I've actually read through the form and seen what it says to do. Basically, you have to, a small business has to send its complete payroll records to the bank in order to get relief from the Paycheck Protection Program. Now, there is a class of people that received money from the Paycheck Protection Program that the EZ Forum works really well for. It's very employed. Self-employed. If you were 1099 for all of your income and you had no employees, that's an easy form. It's an easy one to do because all you do is you just fill it out with what money you got and what the money did and you just send it back in. Everybody else, which is the vast majority of people that got paycheck protection programs, there's no easy way to do this. And, and we thought it was going to be easy at the beginning. What were we thinking was the government. Um, they have changed the rules more than 10 times after the program was opened. So just keep that in mind is that even the Small Business Administration doesn't know what they're supposed to do because Congress hasn't given them a good framework for how to make the rules. Yeah, for example, one of the things that you can use the Paycheck Protection Program loan for and get forgiveness is utilities, but it doesn't tell us what utilities are. Right. So, is the internet a utility? It doesn't say. Is the internet a utility? That's a good question. Is it? I would say so, but yeah. maybe not. But but then we're not dealing with the IRS. We're dealing with the Small Business Administration. Right. Let me add one other thing. Yeah, I know we got commercials. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. There is something called the Moody's Analytics and CNN Business Back to Normal Index that Moody's runs, and it right. seems to be very, very, very efficient and very, very, very accurate. It was running up around 80% and has been since uh, the beginning of August. In other words, we're still down about 20% from where we were at the beginning of the year as far as economic activity in the United States is concerned. Here's the thing that's a little bit frightening. During the month of September, it's been sagging. It's dropping downward. And there's anecdotal evidence that it's continuing to drop downward. The the, The lack of action by the government by the Congress and the President to get us another stimulus bill to put more money in the pot for the people who are unemployed, and that's a lot of people, something like 28 million people conservatively right now who were working at the beginning of the year and not working in the United States. They they saved a lot of money, and so they continue to spend through August. They still get something, but it's all starting to run out now. And, and believe us, when, when, when we say that we're holding both sides, all sides of the government to blame here, this isn't a party issue. The Republicans and the Democrats are not working together, period, on this right now. It's, it's everybody's them, fault. Both of them perceive that the election will be affected by their position. So the conservatives, matter of fact, a large number of Republicans in the Senate say they don't want any bill at all. They don't want any further stimulus. And the Democrats are asking for the moon, the sun, and the stars, and they're not moving very. They're not moving towards each other hardly at all. Yeah, and the, the and it's literal on the moon, the stars, and the star and the sky. I mean, you can you'll get them deposited into your bank account according to the uh, Democrat plan right now. And it's to the point where, by the way, the negotiations are between the White House and the Democrats. The Senate is so the Senate Republicans are so divided on this issue that they backed out of the negotiations altogether. Right. There, there's no consensus. So what that means is people talk about this. The bank called me the other day and said, what can we do to, to get this done? And it really, really just comes down to something we have to just admit at this point. The government will not work together right now. It is fully dysfunctional. There is no functionality in emergency or otherwise with the government at the moment. Uh, and it may take the presidential election being final. It may actually take an inauguration when we actually know who won before we get any action in any direction. It'd be nice if the lame duck Congress would do it, but this is the same folks that up to now have not. So uh, it, from from my perspective, we've gotten so polarized that it's us, them, rather than we're all American. And when we say America first or make America great again, and the Biden campaign has similar statements about um, supporting America, we really need to get down to the fact that we are all Americans 
Red, blue, doesn't matter. We're Americans, and when someone's elected, uh, President Trump is my president. President Obama was my president. Did I vote for them? None your business. Um, but I will give them the respect and hope that they treat me as an American rather than ask me how I voted before they try to help me in an emergency situation. That's ludicrous, uh, and, and we're seeing it on both sides. One side's using it as an argument to say, hey, they're doing it. Well, so are they. <laughs> it's both sides doing this right now, and it's not like we should be surprised that politicians lie frequently. There's been jokes about that since there have been politicians. But usually the American people, particularly in an election year, can hold them more accountable for their actions and this year, because there's so much confusion and craziness, we're not seeing that. And do you, do you want to take a, a moment to say some words before we play commercials? Because we really have to get them. Let's just do commercials. Okay, we'll be back on the other side. If you'd like to join the conversation, we've got email waiting. Uh, the email addresses are jake at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side. back with more of the personal wealth coach uh this is jake mcclure on the line with me is jeff mcclure yeah, okay. yeah nice um together go ahead did we say that together no not at all not even close no. but okay there's a lag on the on the on the cell phone and so one day our, our melodious voices or not so melodious voices will chant in unison our names again um let's uh, talk about the creek don't rise Let's talk about that for a second. There are now about six companies in stage three trials and that may be willing to issue vaccines in the United States. The big one, Johnson & Johnson, began a 60,000-person test of a single-dose vaccine in Brazil, South America, and the United States, South Africa, and the United States. The problem with all of these tests is, first off, some of them will not be effective. We'd love to say that they've gotten into stage three. They must be about to be effective. Yay. I, I, a reason I, I, count, stage three. I count nine of them, by the way. Okay. They're different kinds, but there's, there's several of them. Four of them are really big companies doing really big tests. Probabilities are at least one, maybe two or three of them are going to work out. The problem is. We won't know. Some of them claim they'll have initial results in October, but the results won't have been reviewed. It'll be well into November, maybe the end of the year, the beginning of next year, before we get reviewed, certified results from the stage three trials. And I think even that's too quick because it, it takes a while for people to catch this disease and be and be detected for catching it. You can't. The problem is you have to vaccinate a lot of people. Half of them are getting placebo, and half of them are getting the vaccine. And you have to see if the placebo group were infected during the period of time and the non-placebo group weren't. And you have to be able to measure that. And it takes two weeks from the time you contract the disease until you actually you get the virus. It takes at least two weeks before the symptoms show up, if any symptoms do, or, or the antibodies show up. So you can't tell. So there's going to be a lag here. Yeah. Speaking about the, big the, lag. The phase three trials generally in a normal circumstance you take between two to four years and then the regulatory review which comes after after the peer-reviewed studies then the regulators look at it and that typically in a normal normal time period takes one to two years um, we're expecting expedited review this is based on the people that will be doing the review they expect it to take two months it's called warp speed yeah warp speed so they expect the review after the end of stage three trials, they expect the review to be two months. We've got folks that are saying that their preliminary results will be in October or November. The ones in October are going to be late in October. Um, multiple months puts us best case scenario into 2021. This is what we've been saying from the beginning. Let me say we don't want to rush on the approval process, we don't want a relaxation of standards on the approval process. We have had in the past in the United States cases where vaccines and medications that were given that were tested relatively quickly resulted in some horrific effects, for instance, birth defects and 
people being ultimately a significant number of people becoming a lot sicker than they would have been if they'd gotten the disease. Uh, right now, for example, and it's a minor thing, but it's real, there's a new form of polio cir circulating in Africa after polio was wiped out. And the polio that's circulating in Africa came from the vaccines. Yeah. And now they're having to find a way to fight the polio that was created by the vaccines, which is a different kind of polio. Yeah. We don't want to have some pandemic created by the vaccine. It's important that we do a careful review of everything. Let, let, me, take... let me give a quick rundown, very fast, because we, well, we don't have time for it. I won't be able to, have to do it. We've got to wrap up. Um, I was going to give a rundown on the virus uh, vaccination types, but uh, we're out of time. If you would like to talk to us off the air uh, about your investments or about the economy in general, uh, you can reach us uh, locally on the phone at 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, and there's a contact us form there. You can listen to recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. You can read our newsletter and sign up for it. You can also email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you all very much for listening. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.